Coming up this hour, Brian Fromm is out of town, so I'll be joined by my good friend, Dr. John Armstrong, all hour here on The Common Good. everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm, but he is out today. A couple of things before we get rolling here. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can send us messages for suggestions or ideas. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you're a podcaster, we know a lot of you are. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does really help us out a whole lot. And as I just mentioned, our dear friend Brian Fromm is out for the day, but I am so excited to be joined all day long by some really dear friends, and Dr. John Armstrong is no exception. Quite literally, when I talk about people who have mentored me, I'm usually talking about one of three people, and John Armstrong is one of them. He has uh, a number of books. His most recent is Costly Love, The Way to True Unity for All Followers of Jesus. You can learn more at johnarmstrong.com. That's enough talking for me. John, welcome to the show, good sir. Uh, it's my privilege always to be with you, friend. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Before we kind of get into the weeds a little bit, would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience again? Yeah, I'm uh, the retired president of a ministry that you served on the board of called the Act 3 Network. That's right. And uh, in the last three years of that mission that I led for 27, 28 years, uh, we transitioned the mission that was built around me and my gifts into a community built around a call to share the love of Christ and to break down walls of division between Christians, denominations, racial barriers, anything that gets in the way of us literally living the love of Christ in oneness together. Hmm. So this is something that has been a heartbeat of yours, I know, for a long while. In fact, I know that when I moved to Chicagoland here, I had this heart for ecumenism, but I didn't know that there was actually a word for it until you and I sort of became friends almost accidentally. And you kind of expanded my world to better understand other people that have been working at this for a long, long time. And when I was uh, chatting with you earlier about what we could talk about today, here's, here's what you texted me. I love this. You said, let's go with the story of a white Southerner in the sixties and today, how I've learned, adjusted and served. Why is now so important? And does ecumenism, what does ecumenism mean for racism? That's probably more than enough to cover for the entire hour. But I would love to just begin actually with that last question. What, what does ecumenism have to do with racism? Well, let's start with a simple definition. Uh, many listeners will hear the word ecumenism and probably not understand hmm. what the word means. It would be simple if we just said we're talking about any effort at Christian unity. But the word ecumenism actually is the better word. It's the more historic word. And it comes from a Greek word, which actually means that which covers the whole earth. Hmm. So ecumenism is the search, the work. The oikumene is the Greek word of the whole inhabited world seeking for oneness with God together. Uh, it is, the word has come to refer since about 1900 to the work of Christians and churches that are geographically and denominationally scattered and separated, trying to find common ways of identity in their Christian faith to work together, to hmm. love together, to do mission together. Hmm. So this rich word, oikumene, which has its origins in the ancient world and in the New Testament, 
I prefer to define it a little bit and use it rather than dumb it down and just say Christian unity because almost everybody believes in Christian unity, Ian, but when you ask them unity with whom, it's unity with people like themselves. Right, right. And you you find that in this particular moment, are we getting better at ecumenism or worse? We're getting better. Yeah. Overall, we're getting better. And and I say that on two for two reasons. One is for for 110 years, starting in 1910 in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, the Christian church on the Protestant side began to say the following. We have an immense problem when we do mission in lands that are not uh, embraceive of Christianity historically. When we take the gospel to these lands and several different denominations go there, the questions the nationals begin to ask us is, which gospel do we believe? The Methodist gospel, the Baptist gospel, mm. you know, who do we believe? And that question caused a gathering in Scotland in 1910 to say, we need to have a better answer than, well, we just have all these denominations. That's the mm. way it is. Mm. And that began to evolve into other ministries and other things over this, over the last century. And then at the midpoint of the last century, the Roman Catholic church got deeply involved because at Vatican Council II, the Catholic Church asked the same question. What is the basis of our unity with other Christians who are non-Catholics? Hmm. And as a result of addressing that question, they began to converse with and work with Christians who are not Catholic. And so those two great events, 1910, 1962 to 1965, were the two seminal moments in the 20th century when this whole business of ecumenism caught flight. Hmm. Now, most people don't know about the, much about those events, Catholics or Protestants. But what they do know is that when tragedies come and communities are engulfed with hurricanes and flooding and fires and people face crises, pandemics, they start seeing Christians work together and they've never seen that before. And they say, what is that? Well, that's a grassroots expression of the ecumenical movement. Hmm. That's what it looks like when Christians start to love each other and go beyond their differences. That doesn't mean we give up our differences. Right. Doesn't mean we become relativists who just say, well, it doesn't matter. Sing right. Kumbaya, oh, let's all get along. No, no, we, we differ, but we differ in a way that families allow for differences within the family, and yet they're still family. Hmm. That's such a good example. So uh, we'll get into this in a lot more detail in the coming segments, but briefly, what does all of what you just shared have to do with this incredible moment that we're experiencing together, not just in the United States, but but globally following George Floyd, Brown Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. What, what, what do you see as the correlation between the practice of ecumenism and abolishing or tackling white privilege, systemic racism, and all that? Yeah. Well, I see a, I see a profound connection for this reason. There, in, in North America and in other parts of the world, South Africa, parts of Europe, the white church has been the problem in racism, not the solution. Hmm. The very fact that we are, as uh, Martin Luther King said, the most segregated hour in America in a week is on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. It's in our churches. Right, right. Um, the answer to that, by the way, is not to just all of a sudden try to mix the races up in churches equally and have 20% black and 10% Asian or something. That's hmm. not the point. Hmm. point is our churches have historically been segregated They've operated without each other, and the richness and the gifts and the culture that the different churches bring to the kingdom of Christ are lost hmm. to other churches that don't engage with one another. And so 
we're losing so much more than we know. And therefore, to flip it around, we're living in a moment when it's possible, very possible, that we're going to address the systemic problems of racism and Christian ecumenism provides a basis for Christians to do this together in a way that they couldn't do separately from each other. Hmm. That's so good. And we're going to get into a whole lot more in the rest of the hour, in particular, what it was like for you growing up in the deep South during the civil rights movement and what you see today compared to then that other voice you're listening to is Dr. John Armstrong, author of costly love. You can learn more at johnarmstrong.com, and he'll be sticking around with us for the remainder of the hour here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is out for today. He'll be back again tomorrow. You can find us, though, on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us messages if you have suggestions for shows. You can also find our podcast. Some of you are listening to the podcast right now, actually. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of those things may seem small, but they actually help get the show in front of more eyeballs. It changes the algorithm, and so we're really, really grateful for all of you who have done that. And in Brian's absence, I've invited a couple of friends that I just think the world of. And for this hour, we'll be joined by Dr. John Armstrong. I need to issue a correction, by the way. His website is not johnarmstrong.com. It's johnharmstrong.com. I'm sure the other John Armstrong is a fine person, but we don't know him. So John H. Armstrong is where you should go. And John was mentioning in the break, he also has a YouTube channel. John, would you talk to us just really briefly about what you're accomplishing through the YouTube channel? Yeah, I decided that uh, because I spent 50 years in public ministry, speaking, teaching, mentoring, writing, uh, that one of the ways I could use my last years in my so-called retirement and be active was to be visual. And so before the pandemic started, I actually had the idea of producing three, four-minute video clips that would go on a YouTube channel in which I would deal with contemporary topics, historical topics, biblical topics, uh, but just speak to one thing and speak, you know, simply and clearly to it. So I've got a library now of about 30 such videos and I, I add two or three a week. So I'm, I'm still at it. That's remarkable. Right, one of the things that you had sent to me via email a little earlier when we were talking about the show today was uh, the fact that you lived through the civil rights era, living in the deep South, went to the University of Alabama. And then you mentioned in your email You've prayed for this moment for 50 years. And, and for the last couple of weeks or so, Brian and I have, have tried to be really intentional about assuming a posture of a listener and a learner. And we've really intentionally been inviting uh, men and women of color, pastors, leaders, particularly in Chicagoland, to speak from their perspective. But I also think you as a white pastor, having lived through the civil rights era in the Deep South, and then, as you said, have been praying for this moment for 50 years can you talk to us a little bit more about what that journey's been like? Yeah, I was born in 1949, so my childhood was the 1950s in the segregated South. Hmm. I think my first childhood memory of race and racism was to ask my dad why we had colored bathrooms and colored water fountains. Hmm. Uh, I just didn't understand it. Um, and that led to questions from about age six or seven. And you know me, Ian, I ask questions and I continued to ask questions. <laughs> and most of my white Sunday school teachers and adult whites, not my white peers as children, but adult white mentors, they basically told me to be quiet. I was mm. caught in trouble. Uh, I didn't understand the culture. I didn't understand the importance of these differences that are based on race. And I should be quiet. Well, I couldn't be quiet. 
Mm. I continued to ask questions. And uh, I remember driving into Nashville, Tennessee, when the first African-Americans laid in the street, in a major street to block the traffic, Mm. to protest uh, segregation. I was probably about 13, 14 years old. uh, And I followed Dr. King Mm. uh, from the Montgomery bus boycott right up until his death. I remember as if it were yesterday where I was standing, what I was thinking, and who I was talking to when I heard that Dr. King had been shot and killed. Wow. Um, So my life was impacted by that. Looking back on it, I wish I had been more of an activist than I was. Hmm. When I got to the University of Alabama, it had just been integrated a few years before. There were only a handful of black students. And uh, my most poignant memory was playing flag football. I wasn't good enough to play for the Crimson Tide. So I played on a flag football (laughs) team for the Baptist Student Union. And we played a bunch of Greek fraternities. And we were one of the few flag football teams that had African-Americans on our team. Wow. And I remember the fraternity boys punching and hitting and kicking and using the N-word and cursing and yelling at our guys because we were either in-lovers or we were black. Mm. And uh, I experienced it by being on a team with black teammates and seeing us get beat up by these frat boys. Wow. That was memorable. That was changing. But here's probably brings it to Chicago. And right now in my life, I transferred after a couple of years to Wheaton College. Hmm. When I got to Wheaton College, I thought, well, finally, I'm going to be away from the racism of my Southern roots. Right. Then was I shocked. Hmm. The racism that I met in the city of Wheaton, in the Western suburb of Chicago, and I eventually discovered in the city of Chicago, the culture and the history of Chicago, um, the redlining of Chicago, the policing of Chicago. Uh, I'm not shocked anymore because I've lived 50 years watching Chicago in the suburbs Hmm. Uh, and the racism that is here. Dr. King said the racism of Chicago was more subtle, but deeper and more profoundly impactful on the lives of black people than it was in the deep South. Wow. Uh, and I learned that firsthand. That was true because I lived in the deep South and then I came to Wheaton, Illinois and I saw it for myself. Wow. So, so what do we do with this moment here and now then, because like we, and we talked about this on the show yesterday, Louis Giglio said some things on Sunday and the internet has sort of erupted over that. I was just sharing with you how Brian and I really wanted to intentionally talk less and, and listen more. And it feels like everyone has a different take on, okay, so what are the ways forward then? How, how can, how can you and I, John, as white pastors, white leaders, not only serve the black community, but but listen, lament, how can we grow? Like from your vantage point, having having lived through a lot of this, what what are some of the, the ways forward as you see it? Well, let me start by saying that one of my practices for decades, and you're one of the recipients of this practice, is friend making, right? Mm-hmm. I love people. I love to make friends. I especially like to make friends with people that might be from a very different culture and background than myself. So I have grown and developed and lived in friendships with African-American leaders and Christian leaders for a long time. And what I have done in the last eight weeks, especially, is is uh, call my African-American friends and say, look, I don't have anything to say to you other than this. I'm here for you. I'm your friend. 
I will listen, but I want you to know that I believe the historic black church is the key that opens the kingdom of God in a whole new, fresh way. Mm. I would have called it a revival, but I don't like the term revival anymore. Mm. I would call it the greatest God moment I've experienced in 71 years on this earth in America is right upon us. But I believe it's imperative that we who are white stop talking about answers and solutions and what we're going to do. And we reach out to our black brothers and sisters who are already in agony and searching and, 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 and answering questions that we're not asking. And we need to say we're here not to ask, not to offer, but to listen. Right. Which is so difficult. That's one of the things I've even been convicted about regarding this show, because I I don't want to necessarily be processing or learning all of these things from a platform. You know what I mean? Like I've had a number of friends say, we've been doing this work for a while. Welcome to the work. You know, like why, why do you think that is? I know we only have a minute or so left, but why do you think it is so difficult for so many, particularly white evangelicals to take a backseat to just simply listen and learn rather than having to be the one kind of upfront? I think it's because white evangelicals have both a theology and a lifestyle problem. The theology is a theology that is individualized Christianity. It's all about me and my salvation and getting into heaven and getting my sins forgiven. Mm. It's not about reconciliation or community or Christ building us up in oneness through love. Because we have this defective theology, we have a defective practice Thus, we don't know how to listen well to the other and receive from them the gifts of God that they have. That's really good. I'm going to ask you more about that coming up next, because I think that's a really, really key observation. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dr. John Armstrong. He's a dear friend. He's a doctor. He's a leader. He's a, uh, what have we called you? I call you the the Mac Daddy of the neo-missional ecumenism. Is that... (laughs) Is that fair? Well, we'll we'll debate that title a little bit later. But he also has a wonderful book called Costly Love, The Way to True Unity for All the Followers of Jesus. And he's going to stick around with us for the remainder of the hour. Coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He's gone for today. He'll be back again tomorrow. So fret not. You can find us a bunch of places. The Common Good Radio Show is where we're at on Facebook. You can not only read the articles we share, but we would love to hear from you. There's some healthy, sometimes heated dialogue and debate that goes on there, but we'd love to be a place for some conversation like that. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, I know I say it all the time, but honest to God, subscribing, rating, reviewing, even sharing, all that stuff does help us out a whole ton. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined all hour by Dr. John Armstrong. He's a friend, a mentor, an ecumenist, also author of the book, Costly Love, The Way to True Unity for All the Followers of Jesus. And we've been talking about some of his own experience, having lived through the civil rights era in the Deep South. And you mentioned in your email to me that you've been praying for this moment right here for 50 years, which I imagine even saying that might get you into trouble with some people groups like I as a pastor have certainly caught heat on both sides of the debate. Why are we even talking about this? Is this even really something a Christian should engage in? What, what do you say as a deep lover of Jesus and also someone who says, no, I've, I've been praying for this moment. How, how do you speak to that theologically? Well, and of course, I, I, you know me. I, I think that we have to speak not in arcane language, but clear language, but it has to be rooted in good theology. That's right. 
And and for me, that starts with nothing more or less than the Lord's Prayer, the model Mm. prayer. Mm. And that is that we pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's right. And and if we're going to live our Christian faith in the world as salt and light, then we have to live praying and working and laboring that the kingdom of heaven would come, that, that God's reign, God's presence would be transformative in us and in those we touch and live with, namely our neighbors. Hmm. And so to love God and to love my neighbors, to pray the kingdom prayer, to live the kingdom gospel takes me outside of simply private, individualized me and Jesus and puts me in the place where to love God means to love my neighbor and to love my neighbor means to be involved with my neighbor, Hmm. really involved. And so I think the church has a theology it's the theology of the kingdom, not the theology of the privatized individual gospel. Right, right. Sounds like you're talking almost a little like uh, Walter Wink and the powers that be addressing issues of systemic or structural racism, which brings me to my next question that I didn't really prep you for. So this isn't totally fair. Where do you land with the phrase Black Lives Matter? I feel like that right now is a particular phrase that everyone has some kind of reaction to. Boy, oh boy, do they ever, because I have identified with it and expressed my support for the phrase and what it stands for in the widest sense, not the narrow sense. And as a result of that, very fine Christians throughout the world, in Europe and Scotland and and Germany and places that know me and all over America, I've had many Christians say, how can you identify with a movement that was founded by two lesbians who openly say that gender issues are at the heart of Black Lives Matter and express it in sexual terms that many Christians have a problem with. Hmm. And so my answer is, look, Black Lives Matter is not principally about gender. Gender is a part of it, but it's it's not the whole of it. It's, it principally arose in 2014 as a movement to try to call attention to the fact that blacks were suffering disproportionately hmm. in their relationship with police and community to white people, and that in saying Black Lives Matter, they're not saying no other lives matter. In right. fact, they're saying because Black Lives Matter, all other lives matter. Hmm. So they're trying to turn the tables. If you read the two women who founded the movement, and I've read their story and their book on it, um, they're affirming the humanness of black people who've been treated in anything but human ways historically. And so they're saying that when Black Lives Matter everybody's life will matter. Hmm. So we need to re-understand the term, where it comes from. Uh, I don't defend everything these two women stand for or everything they have said, but BLM is an expression that's now gone much wider than maybe they even thought it could Hmm. to express a movement of culture. And it's a movement that, you know, when the civil rights movement arose, I listened to Christians say, what does civil rights and changing voting rights laws have to do with the church and the gospel? That's what I heard. Interesting. Now I'm hearing, what does Black Lives Matter have to do with the gospel and with us as Christians? And I say, it has everything to do with us. It's about the love of Christ. It's about the unity of the church. It's about being made in the image of God. It's about the human race, Hmm. all of it. And it's about the fact that white privilege, white education, white power and prominence in our culture has constantly choked the life out of anything that seeks to express the blackness Mm. and the pride and the power of being black in a culture that's been dominated by white people. Mm. 
John, have you ever considered a career in preaching? I, I feel like you might really have a knack for it. I feel like you are. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I've done it, but uh, probably <laughs> my career has reached the point where I have to do it now with you on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm so glad you used the phrase because my follow-up question, while I'm just firing potentially controversial phrases at you, what do you say to people that take issue with the phrase white privilege? What I say is that white privilege is not something you own or you bought or you earned or you it's a it's an albatross hung around you. It's something you're born into hmm. being born in a, in a society that has privileged white people from the day they're born educationally, economically, socially, religiously. It is so privileged the white person that it is extremely difficult for a non-white person to advance in these various areas in such a culture. Now, that doesn't mean all white people are guilty of intentionally doing this themselves. Mm. By being white, we are related to the system. And this is what we mean by systemic racism. Many of my friends will say, well, I'm not a racist. When I see a black person, I just see another person. I actually feel that's pretty preposterous. Hmm. Of course they see another person, but that person is black and they know that it's ridiculous to say otherwise. <laughs> but the difference is they see, they don't, they don't dislike a person because they're black and they're really sincere when they say this, but by saying it, they don't understand what it means to be black because they've never spent any significant time listening to the story of African-Americans dealing with the police dealing with people in power in the job, in the marketplace, in education. They've not experienced it. Mm. And until we stop and listen, we won't know the experience and we won't understand why our white privilege is actually a part of what the problem is, even though we don't intend for it to be a part of the problem. Goodness, that's so good. All right, I know that we only have like a minute left, but I just thought of one more and you actually mentioned it. So this is working out perfectly. What do you say to people and maybe especially Christians who in light of what you were just saying, tend to say things like, well, I don't see color. I'm, I'm colorblind. I don't, I don't see color or any of that. Yeah. Well, I'm not colorblind. Uh, when I see a black person, I see a black person, but I see them as, as every bit made in the image of God as I am. Every bit as precious to God as I am. Mm. Different in terms of their culture and their background and their family than I am. And I generally think, you know, I have been blessed with things that likely they didn't have opportunities they didn't have, uh, doors to go through they didn't have. But I don't I don't think of my privilege so much as the fact that I value this person because this person is the image of Christ. They're a Christ bearer and they bear his image to me. And I love Christ, so I love them. Gosh, that is a good, succinct answer. And again, for all of these conversations, we would love to hear from you, by the way. Like we realize this is two white guys right now talking, but We'd love to know what would you push back on? What would you like expounded on? I know that uh, Dr. Armstrong is not only just a writer and a thinker, but he's also a pastor. So this is a conversation that I'd love for us to continue to have. But John will be joining us for one more segment as we continue this conversation here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is out today, but he will be returning tomorrow few things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not just a Facebook page, though. That's where we post all of our articles. You can send us a message if you have suggestions for future shows. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And 
wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you're a podcaster, which we know a lot of you are, maybe you know someone who's looking for a podcast, send it to a friend. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that changes the algorithm so that more people can find the show. And we're super, super grateful for those of you who have already done that. But in Brian's absence, got a couple of dear friends joining me today. We have Dr. John Armstrong all hour here. You can learn more at johnharmstrong.com. That's johnharmstrong.com. He also wrote a wonderful book called Costly Love, The Way to True Unity for All the Followers of Jesus. And we've been talking about race and the gospel and Black Lives Matter and white privilege. And for this last segment, John, I imagine... There might be someone listening who's thinking, wait a minute, am I am I supposed to feel guilty for being white? What, w- what would you say to that person? No, you're not supposed to feel guilty. <laughs> not unless you are, you are overtly vengeful, filled with hate and anger, mm. you know, racial hostility. No, but what you, you know, that kind of guilt won't do you any good or anybody else any good. Right. What you need to feel is the, uh, the pain and the loss and the the way in which the black brother and sister starts out life literally two, three, four steps in the hole compared to where you started. Hmm. And you need to feel that and understand that in the best way that you can so that you can, you can uh, love and serve uh, the other and honor the other. And one way to do that is to understand how the other has reached where they are in their life and where you've come from and what allowed you to get to where you are. Hmm. Okay. So you're someone, John, that has done a lot of reading and built a lot of friendships. Like what I love, I think of you and I think of that Carl Bart quote where he says, do theology with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Like I think mm-hmm. that, I think that you actually live that out remarkably well. You're not just, in some ivory tower pontificating, you're, you're actually building relations. You're, you're living what you've been talking about. And I know that for a lot of people, maybe a lot of what you've shared this hour is brand new and they, they want to learn more. Can you point people in a couple of helpful directions for resources that have been helpful for you? Uh, yeah, I, there's a couple of really good books. They're not, they're not particularly Christian books. There's some really good Christian books, but for just some basics, um, I would start with uh, the writer Ibrahim X. Kendi, and he says, I think one of the most memorable phrases in his writing is that the opposite of a racist is not a non-racist. The opposite of a racist is an anti-racist. Hmm. Uh, I think if you heard nothing else today, that would be something to ponder for a while. Yeah. You really want to engage in the racial uh, solutions of this time. You have to become a thoughtful, educated anti-racist. Hmm. And uh, then I would recommend Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Hmm. Um, and then finally, I would recommend if a person can do this, at least put it on their bucket list, their wish list or whatever you want to call it, to, to go to sites in America that are historic, uh, such as this last in the last 12 months, 18 months, I've been to the two most important ones I think I've been to in my lifetime, the, the American uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington D.C. Hmm. It utterly blew me away. Really? I just can't describe how powerful that museum is. Wow. It's life transforming. And the other one, equally life transforming in a totally different way, is the Lynching Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Hmm. Uh, and that brings me to remind anyone who doesn't know this 
that was the vision and begun by uh, the well-known Christian Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy, That's right. which came out as a feature film last year and is accessible right now on Amazon and Netflix. Just Mercy is the story. It goes right back into my roots because he first went to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is where the university is, to seek to bring about justice for people who were convicted, black people who were convicted by all white juries in small counties and towns in Alabama. Hmm. And eventually that became a, across the South, a ministry of mercy and justice to unjustly convicted black men and some women. Wow. Um, it's a great story, by the way, if I gave a white person who's defensive and really kind of pushes me away on any of this conversation, the first thing I would probably give them is just mercy oh, because really? it's not in, it's not in your face. It doesn't get right at racism per se. And it just tells the story of people that Brian got involved with. Hmm. And it's very moving how he got involved and while he got involved as a Harvard, young Harvard law school student and chose to devote his life entirely to justice for the poor and the black who were convicted by all white juries in the deep South. Wow. So one of the things, John, just to say it out loud that I so love and appreciate about you. And I know so much of your story and journey now having been friends for, I think probably a decade at this point is your consistent commitment to growing and learning. Like you seem to have somehow mastered the ability to not be defensive when your ideals or theology is challenged and it's something that Brian and I talk on the show a lot about because particularly in this digital social media age it feels like defensiveness is at an all-time high you just you just used that word just a second ago would you take the last couple of minutes or so and just talk about how do we how do we actually faithfully lovingly engage in dialogue going forward with people we disagree with because I think you're exceptional at it well, I don't know whether I'm exceptional or not. <laughs> Some days I think I'm a total failure. Hmm. Um, the social media is a great challenge. Yeah. And there have been those moments when I've said, I, I am done with Twitter and Facebook. It does no good at all. And then I'll come back to it and try again. And I'll try again and I'll try again. And then I get a, a message from somebody who says, you don't even know me, but my life has been changed by watching how you respond to people who disagree with you. Hmm. I think, well, I guess it was worth trying for that yeah, reason. Right. And, right. Uh, and then to make it more personal, in the last uh, three years plus, uh, since the last presidential election, uh, both on both sides of my family and within my extended family, um, the present political situation and the racial components of it have just been so divisive to the point of ending conversations with the idea when you walk away, I don't think we're going to talk again. Hmm. Uh, and then to come back and try again and try again and not give up. And uh, so um, you just never give up. If the person, if you love, love never quits. That's what Paul says. Love never gives in. Love never quits. That's right. That's so right. you keep coming back and you keep coming back. And you have to avoid bitterness and anger and hostility towards the person who holds a view that you find reprehensible. I mean, there's a lot of views now by a lot of white people that I frankly just find reprehensible. Mm. But that doesn't mean the person is reprehensible. It doesn't mean they're evil or they're bad and I should oppose them. Right. That distinction has to be made. Gosh, that's so good. All right. I, I would be remiss if I didn't do this. In, in the last minute or so that we have, you wrote a book called Costly Love. It's actually the first endorsement for a book I've ever written. I liked it that much. 
Would you just take the last minute or so? Because I would love for people to buy and check out your book and buy it for other people because I think it's remarkable. Just real briefly, what's what's the vision behind that book? The vision is very simply this, that we do not understand what God's love is or what God expects of us to love with his love. Hmm. And so because we don't understand love, we think love is an emotion, it's a feeling, it's being nice. Hmm. Uh, it's none of that. Um, it doesn't mean the opposite of nice, but <laughs> love can be tough, love can be hard, love can be demanding. We just talked about some illustrations of working out differences with people who, who hold views that we find just completely reprehensible. So, so, so this love is this love is not cheap. It's costly. It'll cost you your life, mm. but the source of your love is God Himself, who loves you and gave Himself for you. That's so good. I really do mean it. I can't. I can't stress it enough. Get this book. It's called Costly Love: The Way to True Unity for All the Followers of Jesus. You can learn more at johnharmstrong.com. That's johnharmstrong.com. Check out his YouTube channel, friend. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show again. I appreciate it so much. It's always my pleasure. Feeling is mutual, my friend. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we'll be joined by my friend Casey Tigret, author, pastor, podcaster, and lover of cardigans. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is out today. He will be back tomorrow, but we have a number of really wonderful friends joining us for today's show. Before I introduce him, though, quickly, the Facebook page is The Common Good Radio Show. We post our articles there. You can send us messages if you have suggestions for future shows. Plus, we're podcasted. If you're a podcaster, subscribing, rating, reviewing, that stuff does magically, mystically, somehow Help us out, and we're super grateful for all of you who've already done that. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by my friend Casey Tigret. He's a pastor, a preacher, an author, a podcaster. I said lover of cardigans. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just threw it out there anyway. Casey, thank you for joining us on the show today. Yeah, it's good to be with you. I've I've been known to love a cardigan here and there. I mean, you know, they do. They're very functional. They're quite, uh, sometimes they're quite slimming. Just depends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, if I'm having one of those days where I need a win and uh, also need to be warm. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I could could go with you on that. Sure. I mean, there are worse things to be known for. That's that's for sure. Um, Absolutely. I mean, sweater vests. Oh, please. Forget about it. Cardigans, yes. Sweater vests, no. No, no. I don't know that we've ever had a a sweater vest wearer on the show ever. So there you go. That's all the proof that I think you need. Uh, I mentioned sort of briefly that you're a a pastor and a writer and a podcaster, but why don't you introduce yourself, our audience, real quick, and just explain some of those projects? Yeah, yeah. So I've been in the Chicagoland area for about 11 years, but I've been all over the place. And I think that's kind of represented in all the things you just said. And like that, that introduction kind of even makes me tired to think, oh, gosh, I've got a lot I should be doing right now. Um, but the podcast idea is it's just something I love to do because I've had all these great conversations and I just, I, I have these great conversations with great people. And I think, why can't everybody do this? And so that's why I started this podcast three years ago. And 
Uh, some of the writing I've done is the same. I've just had these opportunities to have some interesting experiences and to try and, you know, I love bringing together stuff that nobody's really talking about. Like, hey, let's talk about neuroscience and spiritual formation, or let's talk about human development and the teachings of Jesus and like bring some of those stuff, some of that stuff together. So that's, that's what I'm about is trying to help people find the intersection of where like God is active in everything. Mm. And, uh, and, and those are also places where I get a chance to, you know, I, I feel like faith should have a sense of humor, like humility means we should be able to laugh at ourselves. So these are also places where I get to bring some of that, you know, you know, looking at our whole cardigan discussion just now is probably not the best example of that, but it's a start, you know, you have to warm things up a little bit. So I've been able to do a lot of different things, uh, pastoring in the South suburbs of Chicago and, uh, being a spiritual director and helping people identify where God's active in their life. So I've just been, I've just been blessed to kind of be all over the place. Honestly. That's amazing. I think I actually just figured out why we're friends because Brian will often call me the neuroscience guy on this show. And it always sort of baffles him. Like, why does that even, why does that even interest you? And I and like what you just said, like, oh, it's God's active in all of that. That's, that's part of what makes this thing so fascinating. I'd love to know before we dive into some specific articles, what has the last two or three weeks been like for you? You're, you're a leader, a pastor, a spiritual director. I'm sure you've had a lot of questions. I'm sure people have raised a lot of questions to you. How, how have you been navigating the last couple of weeks in particular? It's been challenging because uh, I have some unique factors in my own life. I, I grew up in Southern West Virginia, so I I have been, and I, it grieves me to say this, but only recently have I really begun to reckon with my own uh, mm. history and and some of the things I was taught as a kid about race and about uh, the differences and and you know implicit things I was given explicit things I was given. And I was talking with someone about this yesterday and just saying it, it now I've lived so much of my life with these stories that were just so imbalanced and unfair and destructive. Mm. And so I've been reckoning with that even more in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but also, you know, for a lot of us, and this is, this is touchy, I get it. But for a lot of us, the pandemic thing really isn't over. Uh, we have family members who are immunosuppressed because they had surgical procedures and they they take a maintenance medication that, you know, they don't have an immune system. And so we're not as a family having to make some really difficult choices about going out or going back, things like that. And so I've been trying to help people from where they are because not everybody has those particular stories. Right. Uh, right. But also you know, sort of speak from the truth of, of what I'm, you know, what I'm processing as a leader, as a pastor, as a spiritual director and, and what I'm hearing from God and, and, you know, trying not to spend much time on social media hmm. because just trying to have constructive conversations with, with real people who I can actually reach out to and have a relationship with. So that's been a lot of it and encouraging people to do the same. Uh, I've been asking this question a lot lately. Do you really believe that? And I find that's such a good door uh, because so much of, you know, so much of social media is like declarative statements. Yes. Did you see this link? And did you hear this? And and my statement in back is like, do you wholeheartedly believe that? Mm. And if so, then have you wrestled with the implications of what that means? And so that's been kind of the, the last couple of weeks, it feels like it's been a bit of a juggling 
act and mm. trying to keep my stuff moving. And not that this is new, like I'm talking about this, like it's a novel thing, but this is what we all do, right? We're juggling this, this personal side. And then we're also trying to serve our families and our communities. Some of us are churches, some of us are workplaces, whatever that might be. I say I'm fascinated by that because I'm, I'm curious how, and maybe this is unanswerable, how do you ask a question like, do you really believe that without people becoming combative or defensive? Because it feels like, one, you're right, social media is a lot of declarative statements. Two, there's not a lot of nuance, typically, for people to kind of get into the weeds faithfully, patiently over a long period of time. You, I think, probably just have a natural skill for disarming people and asking tough questions. That's probably what makes you a good pastor and spiritual director. But how do you ask questions like, do you really believe that? And if so, what are the implications without, you know, breaking out in fisticuffs? Yeah. Well, that question is, is, is really beautiful when it's asked in relationship. Hmm. And, and when it's someone you don't know, like I try not to engage in debates with people I don't know. Yeah. Uh, because there's no contract there, you know, right, right. Uh, what is, what is my hoped for when? Well, I mean, I could win that argument, but I don't even know what that means from a social media perspective. But if it's somebody I know, mm-hmm. I ask that question because that question implies, I think in some ways it implies, I don't believe you believe this. Right. I actually right. think a little better of you than what this post or this statement is actually saying. And I'm not, I actually, like a lot of times I think we feel like the best way to correct somebody is to point out where they're wrong. My thing is, I think the best way to correct someone is to point out where they're better. Wow. They're actually, you're better than this. And I don't even know if you recognize how this statement sells short, the Mm. goodness that's in you, like the God honed, crafted, sculpted image that's within you. Um, this doesn't fit that. And you may not know that. And you know what? Right. I, I say junk all the time, Ian, mm-hmm. all the time. That totally sells that short. And thankfully, I have people in my life that are like, what are you, what are you doing? What right. is that anyway? Right. So trying to be the gentle person who says, I think you're better than that. I really do. See, and I think, I think back to like coaches that had a big impact in my life. That, that's what they did. Like even... In parenting, I'm finding myself when it comes to my eldest, who's only two, and he does something, and I'll say, "No, no, no, that's that's not what older brothers do." Like you're, you know, and he's two, so he's just looking at me blankly. Like, Can I just have a snack and leave, please? Like, why are you? But I think that's, I think that's really brilliant, though, to to elevate kind of this sacred imago day. Like, no, 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 this behavior, or this comment, or this this manifesto is is not actually who I who I believe you to become, which I think is I think is brilliant, and. uh I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you're going to be joining us for the rest of this hour. Casey Tigret, as I mentioned, is not only a pastor, a preacher, he's an author, a spiritual director, and a podcaster. And he's going to be sticking around for the remainder of the hour here at The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian from Fret Not. We'll be back again tomorrow. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Good Talk. 1160hope.com slash common good and wherever it is podcast. Casey, you were one of the very first guests that we had on this show way back when we were just little saplings. We were nervous and jumbling our words. Now we're less nervous, still jumbling our words, but you've written a book on memory, a book on curiosity. You have a podcast. 
You also informed me that the McGriddle is currently trending. How do you find time to do that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I have a very ordered life and apparently part of it has to do with, you know, keeping track of which McDonald's foods are trending on Twitter. Uh, I just, I just was interested, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm a watcher of stuff and, um, you know, after of everything that's gone on in the last two weeks, and and I don't mean to make light of any of that, but to see something pop up that says, "Oh, the McGriddle is trending," right. you're like, "Where where are we? Right? What has, hap- what has happened? Is it that we need something that's a distraction? I mean, I'm surprised this is not the moment where some executives are like, "It's time to bring back the McRib," <laughs> because everyone will lose their collective minds. Um, <laughs> it'll bring healing. The UN will be involved. It'll be amazing. You know, so the McGriddle gets trending on Twitter and I'm like, and then it sets me off on all kinds of other thoughts. Like I've never actually had one. And what are people saying about it? Are they, is this like a war of words? Is there sort of a breakfast sandwich embargo that's going on? You just don't know with social media what, what you're going to find once you start digging through all the, you know, hashtags and references and retweets and tweets. And so, yeah, I just felt like we needed to talk about it because, you know, people want to know. I think for people that have listened to the show for a while, that 30 seconds in everyone's mind was the trigger why they said, oh, this is why they're friends. That's why. <laughs> that, that rant right there, that was, that's just Ian 2.0, and we are, we are here for it. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to be amongst friends. That's for sure. <laughs> Agreed. All right, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this a couple of times. You are a preacher, a writer, a podcaster. You have a, a number of books. I've actually had you out to the Yellow Box to talk about your books. You can learn more at caseytigret.com. All of the information is there. Um, one of the things, though, that I find so fascinating is you, you are a remarkably thoughtful person. And I actually wasn't planning to do this, but you're mentioning the McGriddle. And <laughs> and what a strange thing that is to see trending. And I remember a couple of years ago, some some kind of national tragedy. And it was like 48 hours later, everyone was talking about Pokemon Go. And I posted something about, wow, we jumped from like lament to celebration really quickly. And that was a pretty divided post because some people were like, yeah, no kidding. Other people were making comments like, no, we need some of these other distractions like Pokemon Go and the McGriddle to like help us get through. We can't live in lament for too long. How how would you navigate some of that? Like you and I are both white pastors in the suburbs sure. and we're we're taking in all sorts of information and maybe stories and narratives that we've never really interacted with. Where do you land on sort of the, it's time to grieve and listen versus, okay, maybe we do need some levity to come up for air, or maybe it's time to start working, you know, taking steps going forward. How do you navigate that whole ball of yarn? Yeah. Uh, there's, it is uh, the ball of yarn metaphor is, is appropriate because, I think always when it comes to the spiritual life, we're, we're either living in proactive or reactive spaces, right? Dallas Willard used to talk very much about, and, and this is my, you know, I made it now into this segment before quoting Dallas once, which is surprising. (laughs) Um, Dallas used to talk about, you know, what Jesus was inviting people to do was to become the kind of people who would do what he said and commanded instead of just doing what he said and commanded. I think that's incredibly important because we tend to think of it as, you know, muscle up and get it done. 
Whereas right. Jesus was, you, you have to become a kind of person. So move that to this discussion of distraction and lament. Because our worship rhythms don't include lament, we haven't learned how to do it. Hmm. And so all we have, if you go through, there's a catalog of contemporary Christian music that a lot of our churches play on the weekends. And you look for songs that are themed around lament, you'll find something interesting. What you'll find is there aren't any songs that are themed around lament. The most popular songs that we use on the weekend, they are not lament themed songs. They're not even in minor keys. Right. And so if we're not learning in our communities how to practice lament in times when we don't need it necessarily, I mean, there's always something to lament, but if we're not learning how to do it, then when the time comes that we really need to do it, when we want to obey that command to mourn with those who mourn, we don't know how to do that because we haven't trained to do it. And so really then I have to agree with the Pokemon Go people. All we have then is distraction. Because what other choice is there? Right. And so the reason we turn to it so quickly is because th- what's the other option? We don't know how to lament well. And in, because of that, we also don't know how to enter into the suffering of another because for you to lament, for it to be a rhythm, there are going to be times when everything's great. You may come to Lent this year and everything's fine. Right. But some of lament is entering into the pain of someone else. And so what I see is so compelling, especially in the last couple of weeks is what's compelling is, you know, protest can be compelling, but what's more compelling is someone sitting down and going, let me tell you about the fact that I was pulled over four times in one week, twice by the same officer, just because I was black in Southern California. Mm. That that's a moment where you can enter into somebody else's pain. And we have to learn how to let ourselves do that. Uh, because we too quickly turn away from it. We want we want the hallmark moment and we want it immediately. Right. Because we don't know we don't know how to do anything other than that. All of our sitcoms resolved after half an hour. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, we 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 want growing pains when really we're dealing with black mirror and how do we wow. how do we how do we learn how to sit with that? And there's a longer discussion about spiritual practices there, but I feel like that's the relevant piece for the lament side of things. We just don't know how. So if we recover communities that learn how to lament together, we'll be able to enter into the pain of others. And then that's when the real juice starts flowing. Right, right. I think the Black Mirror reference is perfect too, because it was like somebody in conversation a couple of days ago made some comment. They said, it's like all of us are trying to begin on a marathon, having never trained a day in our lives. Like I'm just, Absolutely. my body's just going to run 26 right now. And you're like, no, it's not. You can't actually even will your body to run 26 right now. Now, particularly for white leaders is the time to sit back, lament, listen to the people. Because a lot of people have been saying like, wow, this like brand new work that we need to be doing. And a lot of leaders of color are saying like, no, no, no. We, we've been working here for a while. <laughs> Y- y'all just weren't aware of it, right? So so welcome to the work, but maybe begin by listening. Why do you think it is so hard for, for us to actually sit in those things, not just because we don't know how, but because like, I see a lot of white leaders jumping to social media or jumping to their platforms to offer their thoughts, which on the surface can seem really admirable, but sometimes feels like, hey, maybe maybe don't talk right now. And I realize the irony of like, Asking this question via a radio show, <laughs> right, right, is a bit ironic. But why do you why do you think there's almost this like addictive quality? Like ah, I have to say something. I have to, you know, add my voice to this. 
Yeah. Well, I, I personally believe there's a couple factors, um, which is what you're asking for is my personal mm-hmm. belief. Um, I think one of it is the thing that's endemic to social media, which is if you are a person of, if you have a platform or if you have a, an audience of people who listen, when an issue comes up, especially if you're a pastor, when an issue comes up, you're expected to have a Facebook post about it or a social media post about it. And there are just some things that don't need to be spoken of in a, in a venue that has no nuance. Mm. You know, Twitter doesn't allow you to explain yourself. Right. Um, the soundbite piece is just, it's just too slim for us to actually have intelligent dialogue. Mm. <clears throat> so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other piece is, I think for some of us who are white, we are desperate, desperate to tell everyone that we're not racists. Right. And we, we want to make sure that we have a paper trail, a digital paper trail that someone mm-hmm. can follow and mm-hmm. say, well, he came out and said he's not a racist. But what we're not doing, what we're not doing is saying, but I'm, I'm anti-racist. Right. We're not coming out and saying that because, well, sometimes it's because of integrity. We can't actually say that because one, we don't know what that means mm. and we don't know how to begin to do that. Uh, but I think the need to say something really comes from more the draw and the expectations that social media sets. And then, and then it comes from, I just, I just want you guys to know I'm, I'm white, but I'm not like those other white people. Right. Well, that's, that's not helpful. Wow. That's incredibly helpful. I'm so glad that you're joining us for an entire hour because I have like 47 more questions now in light of that. But uh, we got to go to break. But coming up next, we'll continue to be joined by Casey Tigret. Encourage you to go to CaseyTigret.com to learn more about his preaching, his podcast, his books. And he's sticking around for the remainder of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. Don't worry, he's gone just for today. He'll be back tomorrow. A couple of things before we continue our conversation. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can rate and review that page. You can share it with a friend. You can send us a message. We have some good dialogue going on right now about some of the articles that we've shared there. And uh, you can also find us Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. I'm always so appreciative, by the way. Whenever Brian's gone... And I just think of people I'd like to have a conversation with. Casey, you're always really close to the top for me just because I appreciate the way that you see the world. I appreciate the tone and posture that you take in coaching and shepherding and pastoring other people. And just to say it out loud, I'm grateful for your friendship and for all the work that you do just to, I think, be a really great source of love and beauty in the world. And uh, if you've not heard of Casey, I can't encourage you enough. Go to CaseyTiger.com. You can learn about his books and his podcasts and all that. It's really wonderful. And you were mentioning during the break, by the way, a, a podcast that you recently listened to. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I think it's I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yes. And, and I feel bad that I don't have the person's name in front of me. Um, but it was a podcast with a therapist who um, who is black, who grew up in the South. And I uh, was talking about how quickly we move in situations like in the last two weeks, but more so just big picture, how quickly we move to throw people of different, what he calls bodies of culture. Mm. So white, black, Hispanic, throw all of us in a room and then try to hash things out. And his point is that's, that's what you mentioned in the last segment. It's like trying to show up and run a marathon without training. Right. 
there's a there are things that have to be worked through and sussed out before we can actually have those conversations because he uses the phrase instead of saying white privilege uh he uses the phrase white body privilege hmm. and what he means by that is for a lot of black and brown people it's not just white this sort of abstract concept it's the white body it's the hmm. actual physical body of a white person <clears throat> that for them has been held up as the ideal. So you think about a kid growing up, a black kid growing up watching Disney movies, all the princesses up to uh, not too long ago were all white. Mm. And so how do you grow up with that and not go, okay, that body is the ideal. That's the ideal person. And I'm different. Like even when we talk about diversity, we're talking about diverse from something. For you to have diversity, there has to be a standard and then everything else around it is different. And mm. so when you say that, you're automatically putting that at the center. And and you may be like, well, that's a political thing. But think about it this way. We have been reading. So from, I am you know teaching the Bible and helping people in the journey of spiritual formation. So much of my spiritual formation has happened as I've read the Bible and whether I wanted to or not, I pictured every character as white. And I know that like, there's the whole thing about, well, Jesus wasn't really white. I totally get that. But if you think about this, if you think about the, your favorite Bible story hmm. and you think about the character, inherently we think about that person as a white person. And maybe that's, you know, as a white person, that's, that creates familiarity, but we also don't think about the dynamics that that creates, hmm. you know, stories like Philip in Acts eight and the Ethiopian eunuch, that story is amazing, but it's even more amazing when you think that Philip is a Jewish guy and the eunuch is a really dark skinned black guy. Right. Right. And so there are multiple layers to that story about inclusion and exclusion, about assumptions, mm. about you know presuppositions and prejudices, or even the way that we, we tend to read, I think as a white person, I tend to read narratives in the Bible from the physical posture of the people of power. Mm. I mean, how often do we read the David and Bathsheba story and we come away from it going, wow, David made a huge mistake, but he was forgiven instead of saying, I wonder what it was like to be Bathsheba. Right, right. Because we're always reading it. I'm reading it as a male and a white male from a position of not only power, but also of prominence. And we never look at that and go, wow, that woman was forcibly assaulted by someone in power. Hmm. And you th she didn't have a choice in that. Right. So when we read these stories, and I, that's why I like that idea of like white body. I'm not sure that I'm sold on it yet, but I think it, it shapes our thinking to say, this is bigger than just some airy fairy economic concept. This is a physical thing that happens in the body of people of color when they see the bodies of white people and then what has been done to the bodies of black people throughout history. Wow. One of the things that I'll often say is that worldviews are things we look through, not at. They're sort of like glasses. You and I both wear glasses. I'm yep. not typically aware of the fact that I'm wearing glasses throughout the day unless something fogs them up, which happens a lot more now that I'm you know, wearing a mask, by the way, or if something gets thrown at them or cracks them. But for the most part, I'm just looking through my glasses and I'm saying, well, that's the world. And it sounds like some of what you're saying is, especially for white people, 
it's hard to even imagine how centered our narratives are because it's all we've ever really known. Yeah. It's like, oh, I've just always looked through these glasses before, but for something to fog it up, which in some ways, maybe that's my goal for this interview. Like, can we f- just fog up the glasses a little bit enough for us to take them off and say, oh, I've been looking at the world through a very particular framework that I, maybe I need to challenge some things. Maybe I need to look through a different lens or challenge the lenses that I've been wearing. And I'm wondering, as someone who's a spiritual director and someone who's well-read, like are there other places you would point people to? Like we only have a few minutes together today, but like are there books or podcasts or film that have been particularly formative for you and your journey? Yeah, I think I think there are more resources now maybe than ever that have been yeah. extremely helpful. But I will put a caveat on this. Most of the time we go into them to read them or watch them. And I had to fight through this to read them or watch them to fulfill some sort of checklist. As I mentioned earlier, it was sort of my, Hey, I'm not a racist checklist. Right. And you can actually do these things and not let them affect you. Right. And so I think there are great resources, but those resources need to be partnered with relationships. That's right. And they need to be partnered with conversations with actual people of color who Mm. number one might disagree with what you just read. Right. Uh, Because this is not like a monolithic thing, like all black people think this or all Mm. Hispanic people think this. Mm. Um, But I think that especially in this moment right now where black lives are the focus of the pain, uh, Mm. definitely Brian Stevenson's book and the movie Just Mercy, um, especially because of how it reveals what the legal system is like if you're a black man or woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian's phrase it's is in America, it is much better to be rich and guilty than to be poor and innocent. Right. Wow. And there's just some power there. Uh, there's a book by Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is incredibly important. Uh, there's a documentary called 13th mm-hmm. by Ava DuVernay, who is the director of several, several movies recently, but uh, it's a dives into the 13th amendment of the constitution. And, and, and the other thing is trying to, uh, trying to embrace history. And as a person who teaches the Bible, this is where I find we get tripped up so much is we don't know that there's history going on around the Bible. We kind of pretend that it was like a stage play that just mm. happened outside of time, mm. but there's actual history going on and actual prejudices and conf- conflicts. And so going back into the history around Racism, you know, it's the passing of the Civil Rights Act did not stop the 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 tide of racism. What it did was it checked it, hmm. but it also didn't put everybody on equal footing. So I think I think those those books would be great, and those films would be great, and then take those and have a conversation with them about them with somebody else. That's so good. That's actually a really important. It's something that I often forget to include because you're right. Like there is certainly like a a temptation to this checklist mentality. Like, well, I watched this documentary. Couldn't possibly be racist, right? I've, I've covered, I covered my basis to do it in the context of relationship, which was all of what Dr. Armstrong was saying in the first hour today, which I think is brilliant that you guys are on the same show. Coming up next, Casey's going to join us for one final segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Normally, along with Brian Fromm, he's gone for the day. He'll be back tomorrow. We've had a number of really, really wonderful guests joining us for today's show. Real briefly, 
Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles, you can send us messages. We're also podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, I say it all the time, but I'm super grateful for all of you who have already done that. It really does mean a whole lot to us. And my friend Casey Tigard has been with us for this entire second hour. I highly recommend you check out CaseyTigard.com for his books, his podcasts. Speaking of which, by the way, I'd love to take just a couple of minutes for you to talk about the podcast and your books. What are they? What are they about? Why'd you write them? Anything in regards to your creative work, just take a minute and let people know about it. Yeah. So I'll try to give you a flyover. I'll start with the books. The books have just been a privilege and I still am to this day have no idea why I got a chance to write books, but I did. And so the first one is called Becoming Curious, A Spiritual Practice of Asking Questions. And it just reflected something that I was starting to see where it seemed like asking questions was forbidden in the journey of faith. But when you look at human development and how we grow as people, curiosity is is our native software. It's how we grow. And so mm. when I hear Jesus say, you can't, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're like a little child, I think about that childlike curiosity. And I just said, is there something to that? And I, I just discovered this treasure of being able to ask questions and that faith, faith really isn't even possible without a sense of curiosity. And so that's what the book is. It tackles some of the questions of Jesus. The second one is called, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. And I I deal with a lot of neuroscience about how our brains work and how we pull together memories, but then take the step from there to say, our memories are the things that we use in order to build and shape and continue our life with Jesus. Even saying that word Jesus is loaded with a memory of who taught us, what was our experience been like with Jesus or God or church, or when we hear the word father, we can't help when we pray like the Lord's prayer and we say our father, you can't say that without a memory of what a father looks like. And so Mm -hmm. we just dive into some of the key ways that memories shape our, our spiritual journey. And there are some practices in there. Uh, for it to help people process the memories they have, whether they're traumatic or just seem like they're just blah or whatever. Mm. Uh, there are some practices that help with that. The podcast is called Otherwise. Uh, it's a podcast that's geared towards uh, finding wise teachers who help us along the way on this journey with Jesus. And And this last season, so this is the third season, I've specifically focused on trying to elevate the voices. The podcast has always about been about elevating the voices of women in Christian mm-hmm. teaching, but elevating the voices of uh, people of color as well. And so there are some fantastic conversations that have become so incredibly relevant with people like Brenda Salter McNeil and Natasha Sistrunk Robinson and a woman named Barbara Peacock, who is just, just these wonderful, wonderful conversations uh, that are all about you know, what does it mean to be wise and how do we apply that wisdom to things like racism and reconciliation and suffering and mm. uh, art, uh, poetry? Just I try to spread the board and have a broad conversation on the podcast. And uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Three three seasons down, who knows what's coming next? So, Well, as someone who has consumed all three of those things, I really cannot recommend it enough. You can go to CaseyTigert.com to learn more. And I recommend... Just stop whatever you're doing and do it right now because it's some really, really remarkable and also timely content, to be honest. And uh, we 
debated whether or not we should talk more about the McGriddle with our final moments or <laughs> or something that Brian and I tackled really only briefly yesterday. We mostly just played some sound clips, but by now I imagine a number of you are aware of Louis Giglio's sermon from Sunday, which was more of a conversation. He had Lecrae and Dan Cathy on stage, and he used the phrase white blessing as sort of a replacement for white privilege. And the Internet has erupted and Lecrae posted sort of a follow up video today. Louis uh, uploaded like an apology video yesterday. And I've just I've been kind of champing at the bit, Casey. I would love to know. How are you navigating all of this? What 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 are some possible responses in the midst of all this chaos? Well, I think the big question no one's asking is, what does Dan Cathy think about the McGriddle trending? Obviously, I mean, that's, that's the subtext for sure. That's what we need. Yeah, we can come back to that. That's an asterisk we can come back to. But I think what it brings us back to is, and, and I do want to say, you know, I... I understand that we all, any of us who are public speakers, I've probably said something on this podcast or on this, I've probably said something on this program. I've said something on my podcast. That's what I meant to say. I'm sure I've said things that someone could go, hey, you know what? That was just terrible. And I would need to apologize for it. Same. But I also know that there are the moments, especially in settings like that one, where where, moments like that tend to be very controlled. And tend to be well scripted because there's a lot that goes into it. You know, I, if I'm preaching at my church, I'd send my script in on Wednesday and Mm. there are slides created. There's a team that works with the script and puts it into the format that it needs to be. So there are eyes on these things. And so if Mm. it was just an extemporaneous phrase, just kind of thrown out there, I get that. But I know that a lot of those things are, are, are already done in advance. And here's what I want to say about that. I, I applaud Louis for coming out and apologizing. He mm-hmm. he made a he made a bad decision and said something horrible. Yeah. That looking back on it, I, I'm assuming he said, "I cannot believe I strung those words together." Mm. But I think what it says to us is this: words still matter. Yes, and especially in the context of helping people understand each other. I, I always find this fascinating when Christians get mad about politically correct speech. Mm. And I want to remind them that other than action, speech is the clearest way we have of loving someone. Mm. And so to love someone is, is to know them and to know them is to know what a word does to them. So there are jokes I can make to my wife that other people would hear and be like, gosh, that was terrible. But she knows that we have that sort of rapport and that kind of relationship. Mm. But there are words that there are words that cannot be used. Mm. And so I think it's important for us. There are all kinds of words that, you know, I, I, Louis was trying to overcome this whole idea of white privilege, but white privilege is the word that is most loving because it needs to jar us. Like we need to be loved well enough to be jarred out of that. I'm just always, it's curious to me. I think crisis brings us to the crossroads of our contradictions. And so when there's a crossroads like this and it brings us to our contradictions, our contradictions are, well, I just want to speak the truth in love until somebody says white privilege to me. And then I want to speak the love why aren't you love? Why, why would you say that to me? Why would you say that that's hurtful? No, if you want to speak the truth in love, then you need to be able to receive the truth in love as well. Wow. And so that moment, while it was just 
heavy with bad decisions and pain and hurt. And for my, for my black brothers and sisters, it's like 400 years. It's like nothing ever changed. Wow. But it is more that moment of saying, gosh, words do matter. Yes. Words do matter. And that's why podcasts and radio programs like this, where you steward your words well, because words are a device by which we love. And if we want to love well, we need to speak well. So good. That's so much better than I could have ever dreamt of putting it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts there. If you're just joining us, by the way, that is pastor, author, podcaster, Casey Tigret, friend of the show. You can learn more at CaseyTigret.com. Casey, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. My pleasure, man. Anytime. I'm going to get him a griddle. So (laughs) I think we all are. Let's go do it together. Distancing, of course, obviously. Of course. Of course. Well, Brian Fromm, Fret Not, will be joining us again tomorrow. Thank you all so much for joining us today. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.